Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would help us to settle our hearts, to open our ears and our understanding to see what is here for us. Keep us in your word, Lord, so that we may do your will and bring you glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our tag team exposition of the book of Revelation today in chapter 15 and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. So if you could please turn there now. But before we start to read it, I want to ask you a question. How big is God? I don't mean physically, I mean in character and ability. You see, as we consider this passage here, it's in its obvious context as Part of the book of Revelation, the scope of God's character and ability is something that we are going to encounter along the way. And that's great because it gives us an opportunity to specifically think about how we, well, let's make this personal, how I personally see him. And there's lots of reasons we'd want to do that, but there's one particular direction I want to go in today. The book of Revelation is written principally as a book of encouragement. It says that right up front in its very first words. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Rightly read, it's certainly true that believers do receive that promised blessing and encouragement from this book. However, to be very honest, I have often felt some other things as we've gone along this journey during the last few months. Perhaps it's just me, but perhaps you too have felt a profound sense of sadness as we've talked about the delivery of God's judgments on an unrepentant world. Because it seems that so many people will enter an awful and unrelenting punishment. It's such a waste and such an opportunity. And dare I say this, sometimes it also seems a little unfair to us. It's quite easy to visualize a Hitler or a Pol Pot or a Mugabe being worthy of such a punishment. But what about your next door neighbor or the mechanic who services your car? What about a loved one? Why would they deserve such a thing? And further, Why not also me? Because I know my many sins. These are deep and deeply disturbing questions that may sow seeds of doubt and despondency in our hearts if we do not have a proper understanding of God and why he has given us this particular book. So as we turn now to our passage for today, we will take this opportunity to look at three parts of the Lord's character that will encourage us. And these are God's makings, God's methods and God's might. Makings, methods and might. Now it took me a little while to figure out those M's, so make sure you have a manuscript, mate. Let's read then, starting in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. 
They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are worthy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, at this point you might be mentally reeling because in our study so far there have been so many sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and now here are seven angels and seven plagues, and you've lost count. Please, could we have a two or a three or a four for just some variation? But we can't, because of course the number seven reminds us of God's completeness and perfection. Even in his judgment, he has left out nothing at all. It will be perfectly on time, it will be perfectly executed and perfectly just for both the believer and the unbeliever. This perfection that the number seven stands for is where we can begin to answer our doubts and fears. When John writes here in verse 1 that the sign he sees is great and marvellous, the word that he uses for marvellous means beyond human comprehension. As clever as humans are, actually our own abilities are only a stumbling block when it comes to the problem of who is deserving of God's judgment because they only allow us to go part of the way towards the truth. We are physically unable to see the whole picture because there is not even one technology or human sense that allows us to perfectly test another person's heart. Only God can do that. And so he is uniquely positioned above all he has created to determine appropriate justice in the fairest and most equal way. Moreover, let's not forget that he is creator and since he is so, he has certain rights over what he has made, such as the right to determine how humans ought to conduct their relationship with him and what will be the consequences if they do not. Why should that be so wrong? Imagine that you had laboriously made from scratch, let's say, a table. And for some inexplicable and, let's be honest, slightly spooky reason, it refused to allow anything to stay on top of it. You put your teacup down and crash, it falls on the floor. Your spectacles always slide off and that highly ornamental crochet doily that your Aunt Miriam knitted for you as a wedding present never stays where it is put. It's always hanging halfway off. Would you take pity on the table because it's so decorative and because you spent so many hours sawing and planing and chiseling? No, you take the jolly thing by the leg and bash it to pieces because it's contrary and useless. Now, I accept that's not an especially believable example, but I think it does make the point. God is God, capital G-O-D. And what he does goes well beyond woodwork. He made us 
and everything that surrounds us to infinity, which on its own ought to tell us something. And therefore he owns us, and as such is the only one who can make the final decisions about what we should be doing or not. And those decisions will be made perfectly because that is invariably his nature and ability. God is great and marvellous in ways that we are simply not able to comprehend. And that's why the love and mercy and compassion that he's put in us can be deeply troubled and puzzled by the apparent unfairness and harshness of God's final judgment. We just can't see what he sees. And that's a problem because in that space lies wavering and doubt and fear. What to do then? Recalibrate. Look up. Remember his words here in scripture. Yes, God is big, really big. We cannot ever understand him or his ways. And this is the place of faith and trust. Faith comforts us that God is never unfair or unnecessarily harsh. And although his judgments may pain us, they are always wholly right for that situation. And friends, I know it's very easy for me to stand up here and and say all these things than it is to live them out. But that nevertheless, it remains the truth. Our aim should be to say, like the psalmist, lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. Let's get back to the scene that uh, John is describing. In verse 2 he writes, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having hops of God. So our first question naturally is, what is the significance of the sea of glass mingled with fire? Now I know you'll be terribly disappointed, but I don't know. I consulted a lot of commentaries on the matter which had theories such as the sea being symbolic of the Exodus, a heavenly red sea that has been forded by the martyrs and now is about to submerge their foes. I have to say, I wasn't really convinced by any of them. Our scene here may be reminiscent of the red sea, but scripture doesn't specifically give us that connection or any other. It only tells us that John saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. He saw a dramatic and compelling scene, nothing more, and so we should only hold on to that as a backdrop and concentrate on the actors and what they are doing. We can do that. We can visualize that scene. It's sort of like one of those those great battlefield panoramic things that they have in The Lord of the Rings. Just take a moment. Just think about that. Are you starting to get that idea in in your mind's eye, that panorama, this this great scene? Well, that's good. Let's fill it in some more. What are the actors doing then? Well, on this flaming sea, there is a great crowd of people, not just any people, but specifically those who have not denied Christ during the reign of the beast that was described in chapters 13 and 14. And they have their victory almost certainly at the cost of their own lives. They have refused to bow down to the image of the beast or his mark or take his number. And the original Greek describes them literally as the overcoming ones. And for sure, 
they have overcome a great deal because one can only begin to imagine the hardships that will be caused by refusing to worship that beast or carry his mark. And there's a reminder here. It reminds us that the life of the believer is not passive, but it is active. No one ever overcomes anything except a bad cold by lying in bed. It is true that we cannot ever hope to bring about our own salvation by even the very most extreme of personal efforts because only Jesus can do that on the cross. But that doesn't mean we could just then lie back or lie low thereafter because God has work for us to do, a testimony to make on his behalf. The life of the believer will certainly include toil and suffering and opposition and yes, perhaps even death. And that's a sobering thought, but we must confront that possibility squarely because it is not beyond the realms of possibility that the events that we're reading about here could take place in our own lives. I'm not trying to say that on the 5th of September it's the end of the world, but only the Father knows, and he may bring things to an end at any time. If we have been told or come to believe that everything will become easy and and then we can take it easy when we become a Christian then we're living a lie. We're not overcomers for Christ. We're just dropping his name. So what are these overcomers on the fiery sea doing? They're singing a great song in harmony, accompanied by harps that have been given to them by God. Now some of you will remember Rachel Wright, who attended this church a few years ago with her her husband, I'll get that right eventually, John. And we were very fortunate to have her play her harp during worship a number of times. And I think you'll agree that it was spectacularly beautiful. Now, imagine a hundred thousand such players using perfect heavenly harps. Yes? They would surely exhaust every clever word ever invented for beauty and still leave the description wanting. There's something else to take notice of here. Although this is a crowd of overcomers, they aren't singing a, a kind of victory song that points in any way to themselves. No, all attention is quite properly focused on God. One commentator writes this in explanation. He says, Heaven is heaven because in it at last all self and self-importance are lost in the presence and glory of God. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to heaven then because I do keep tripping over myself. Now in verse 3 they are described as singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And once again there are many descriptions for exactly what and why the song may be and if there is one song or two and so on. But again, scripture doesn't specifically give us that detail and so we shouldn't make things up. What we are told is what they are saying. Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. A while back I asked the question, how big is God? And then went on to say we'd be looking at some answers to that in terms of his makings method and right. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that I'd completely forgotten about that. I'd lost my way. 
We've been going for some time now and not said anything about any of those things yet. Well, I haven't forgotten. I was just waiting for the right bit of the text and here we are. To begin with, one of the important things that's happening here is the Lord's right to rule over and judge his creation is being publicly declared. And this isn't because God is being held to account by some other force or that he is some sort of ego junkie who needs a crowd of hangers-on to tell him all the time how marvellous he is. We know that neither of those is even slightly true. He is the one and all-powerful God. He's perfectly self-sufficient. He does not need anybody to help him feel good about himself. No, this is another warning to the earth of what is coming in the plagues we'll hear about next week and who it is coming from and the motive for its delivery so that no one may accuse the Lord of striking without warning or failing to give humans every chance to repent and reap his love and grace, not his wrath. You see, even God's fairness is beyond our comprehension. Like a great deal of the book of Revelation, this statement echoes the Old Testament. In this case, Psalm 92.5 and 139.14. And of course, God's greatness is a constant theme in Scripture, although it's not always stated in this particular way. If you look at the text, you'll see this is the second time this phrase, great and marvellous, is repeated, because it was also used back in verse 1. And what did I say about it then? I said that it has the sense of greatness and wonder beyond human comprehension. Guess what? It's exactly the same here. It's pointless and fruitless to try to squeeze the things that God does, in this case his works, into a human size box. Just can't do it. You know, if you're like me, and I think a lot of people do this these days, you watch Discovery Channel or you look at some YouTube clips or Facebook clips, you'll soon be amazed by what human hands and bodies and minds can accomplish. And that's especially true now because we have this, all, this electronic jiggery-pokery. And so things they really seem to happen by magic. But not one single bit of that is anything compared to what God, God can do. I'll just give you one little example. Now, I'm sure that most of us have heard of DNA, but maybe you aren't too sure about what it is or what it does. Well, DNA is a very complex collection of chemicals that exists in every single cell of every single living thing to serve as a master plan for that thing's existence. Inside you and me, for example, it determines what you will look like and whether you can balance a ball on your nose like a seal. It provides the templates for the chemicals that swim around in the cells to keep us alive and if a cell gets broken or a bit of a cell gets broken, guess where the information to fix it comes from. And it's good as new. And it is unique to each living being. Okay. So if you had to read that set of instructions printed out in the book, say, your own DNA. Any ideas how big that book would be? Okay, it's a big number. So I'm going to explain that in, in a way that makes sense. 
I'll use Bibles because hopefully you've got one in your hand. So an average Bible has got about three and a half million letters in it, depending on the translation. And that might sound like a whole lot of letters already, but actually you'd need 850 Bibles to hold the whole of your DNA if it was printed out that way, like this, which you can see here. Okay, that's, that's a shorthand for, for what DNA looks like. Can you imagine 850 Bibles filled with that? And remember that there's one of those inside every cell of your body and scientists estimate that there's around 37 trillion cells in your body. Is that big? God created that. Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Who else could do those things? Next, our second end, God's methods. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. What does this word just mean? Because in modern English it can be used in just so many ways. Well, to start with it doesn't mean almost or nearly or closely or exactly or barely like just at the point of death or just enough and so on. But hang on, since I'm here I will briefly and somewhat pointlessly go off course a little to explain a southern African peculiarity connected with the word just that may from time to time cause you Kiwis some confusion. You see, the phrase just now, as generally used here in New Zealand, is past tense. It means something that happened just a little while ago. However, although Zimbos and South Africans may also use it that way, sometimes they mostly use it in the future tense. Darling, will you wash the dishes? Thinks. I'm reluctant to leave my beer and the couch. Quickly responds, Yes, O light of life and balm of soul, I'll do it just now. See, you'll get around to it in due course, maybe when the bottle is empty. So, just now, when you hear it, and think we're talking weird, you'll know why. Of course, none of these uses of the word just is what's meant in Scripture here. The Greek that John has used is dikaios, And it can be used in a few different ways, but here as relating to God, it's used in the judicial sense of giving each one what is properly due to them in the law. And when I say properly, I mean fairly and reasonably. Now it's said of the law that ignorance of it is no defense. But that doesn't help us feel that we've been treated fairly when we've been caught out in Auckland entering the bus lane too early. What's a bus lane anyway, officer? I'm from Wanganui, and there was a space with no cars in it, so I drove there. This is not the way God has treated humans. Right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, he explained the rules. Don't eat the fruit of those trees. He has patiently and graciously been repeating them ever since, even though we continually ignore and willfully break them every day. He has not ever changed the rules, and... He lives by them himself. The Lord is the very author and perfecter of justice and so no one else who has ever lived has ever come close to God's qualifications for its application. And as we shall see, his justice will be applied here by the seven angels. There is a second aspect to God's methods. They are not only just, but true. 
The Greek word that's used here for true means something that which has not only the name and resemblance, but the real nature corresponding to the name, and in every respect corresponding to the idea signified by the name. Now that's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll simplify that. The name, the nature, and the idea all deliver exactly the same thing. And I'll give you an example. See, a few years ago, my family and I visited Rarotonga, and one day we visited Abarua to see what was in the shops there. Now, there aren't a lot of shops there, and uh, they tend to be general stores with quite a large variety of things in each store. And while I was waiting for Joe to finish looking at souvenir leaping dolphin water vessels, I was more than amused to see some boxes of aftershave and display case. See, from a distance, they really looked like the aftershave brute. Do you remember that stuff? It's brutal in a confined space. But on closer inspection, they were actually branded as Bert. (laughs) The colour was the same, the style was the same, and all those flowery things around it but the letters of the name had been cunningly rearranged, and I can only imagine what it smelled like. The idea was there, but the name and the nature was not. It was not true. There are no bends or twists or variances in God. He is true. He is truth. He has no hidden agendas or quirks of character like humans. He is unique, and so whether he declares reward or plague as judgment, you can be quite certain that it is perfectly appropriate for that person. And this is why he alone is king of the saints. Now we come to our third end, which is might. Verse 4, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now, according to Facebook, As of April 2018, Finn Diesel, the Hollywood actor, had the dubious honour of having the most followers for his page. 100.42 million, to be more or less exact. So he's a pretty popular dude. I don't know how many of those followers actually fear him, but given that the world population was estimated to be 7.6 billion people in 2017, that leaves rather a large number of people who have no feelings for Vin at all. Verse 4 says, Who shall not fear God? That means, will anyone at all, in all of humanity, past or present, including our current 7.6 billion and climbing, not a single one of those will not ultimately fear him and glorify his name. But hang on, Dave, what's this fear thing? Isn't God supposed to be love? How can being scary and terrifying be the right feelings to have for someone who is supposed to be the very most loving person ever? Back to the Greek we go. Fear is the word phobeo. And guess what modern word that we get from there? Phobia. Yeah, phobia, of course. And a phobia is defined as an extreme and irrational fear of simple things. Now, it's pretty likely that we've all met someone, someone with a phobia or maybe we even personally have one. And that should be very helpful then in regard to understanding how strong the feeling is. Although, it's maybe not so hot in figuring out how fear and love might fit together. 
And of course, I don't want to take the comparison too far because a proper relationship to God is not irrational. Far from it. But the point I do want to make goes back to the how big is God question. What we read here shows that we ought to have an extreme, almost a phobic amount of respect for God because of who he is. What he has done is doing and will do. Depending on our relationship with him, those doings may be extremely loving or extremely wrathful. Well, which one do you prefer? The other word that might cause some confusion here is glorify, because for Christians that word usually brings to mind the idea of praise that's coming from the heart. We read here that all humans will glorify God's name. But it's kind of hard to imagine Hitler, for example, with his arms raised in praise instead of that silly salute to himself. And it's a much bigger problem than him, isn't it? Because if we look around, we'll see that the majority of folk around us have no interest in him at all. And so this claim of scriptures might be a bit confusing. We need to think in context. Of course, that monster would never glorify God while on earth. But here in Revelation, here, when he will come face to face with Almighty God in heaven to realize the very gigantic enormity of his blunder, he will bend his knee and acknowledge the singular holiness and majesty of God. And he will not be alone, because all who have ever lived will be called to account for their lives on their own knees. Glorifying God is so much more than just praise. It is acknowledging his bigness, his glory and might and power and holiness and righteousness. But here's a question. Will you do that now, willingly as a child of God, give him praise for those things on your knees? Will you wait until it's too late and you have a terrified certainty of judgment? Can you see how big God is now? Will that vision crush you? Or will it encourage you? Do you worship him? Or will you still resist him? That's a lot to think about. That's our three M's. Makings, methods and might. But we still have to finish this passage off by looking at verses 5 to 8. And I don't think it will take more than an hour or so. Before we do so, I just want to draw your mind's eye back to the scene that this event is taking place in. Remember, it's a a grand scene. Huge. It's not a little intimate portrait. There's a vast crowd of saints on this sea of glass mingled with fire and, and they're all singing and playing their harps in the most beautiful song that you've ever heard. Everything that you can see is a wonder and it speaks dramatically of God's power and might and holiness and majesty. And I think it's safe to say that you understand with this vision why it is proper to have fear and reverence for God. So what happens next? Here's what John writes. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. 
And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So I want to stay within the context of this particular sermon. I don't want to really dissect this very much. So for me the most important part of this passage is to note where the seven angels are coming from. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. That's lots of T's. It sounds a bit complicated. So what is it? When we see the term tabernacle, we know that it's talking about God's dwelling place. Given how far we've come in this book and how many times it's clear linkages back to Old Testament scriptures have been mentioned, I hope that you can see one of those coming right here. If we go to the book of Exodus, we'll find that the tabernacle of the testimony was the meeting place, a tent basically, also called the tabernacle of meeting, where God would meet with the children of Israel. And inside there was the ark of the testimony, from which it got the name tabernacle of the testimony. Well, that's so far so good, but there's still one step to explain, hopefully, before it all makes sense. What was in the ark? Exodus 25.16 And you shall put in the ark the testimony that I will give you. Well, that's nice, but we're still stuck on the word testimony. What was that in more common language? Well, the testimony that God gave to Moses was the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which stood as a witness of the Mosaic Covenant and the entire body of Mosaic law that Israel came under at Mount Sinai. So the ark had the law inside it. Then it makes sense that the tent it was in would be called the tabernacle of the testimony. And the tabernacle was always understood both as God's dwelling place and the place where all the rules lived. Where did those rules come from, Moses? That tent over there, and please don't try entering it to argue about them. In the Bible, things on earth are very often pictures of things in heaven. So we have this place the Israelites had that signified both God's dwelling place and the law. So guess what we have here in heaven? The very same, but not a copy. This one here in Revelation is the original. So now we have the whole thing, the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. It's no surprise then that this is the place in heaven where judgment would come from. It makes perfect sense. Whatever is about to come out of the temple is the reality of God's judgment for those who fall short of the testimony of the law and who have not accepted Jesus to save them from God's wrath. And this is why the angels and the contents of their bowls come straight from the temple, for they have and must have the Lord's full authority for justice to be done. There we are. Now, hopefully, we have the scene nicely set for Colfane to start explaining to us the following judgments in the coming weeks. We have the saints, the sea of glass, the glorious song of God's greatness and authority, the angels, 
and this great and terrible temple. Try to hold these thoughts and this picture in your mind for next week. At the outset of this sermon I had two goals. Firstly, to dissect the passage as part of the book of Revelation and secondly, to use its contents both as an encouragement and a challenge. I asked you, how big is God? If you are a believer, then I pray that you found a very big God indeed. One who is abundantly able to make good on all the promises that he has made. That he will bless you and keep you. He will make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. If you are not a believer, I would still wish all of those things for you. But sadly, you can't have them as you are. I hope you understand that none of these blessings are possible because of your own life choices. They make you an enemy of God. He is big. His blessings are big too, but so too is his wrath for his enemies. And you cannot hide from it. So choose your side wisely then. Let us pray. Oh Lord, it's so easy to to read these words and to put sentences together to, do, to describe you, but none of them can really do, do you justice. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in us to give us a real sense of your might and your glory. Because... Lord, that would mean that we would never be able to go on as we are. Place that in us, we pray, Lord. Change us. Make us like Christ. Make us the people you want us to be. And do that for your glory and your honour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.